This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here at Asia Torah in the old city of Jerusalem overlooking the Western Wall. And here we are in a situation where we've got the high holidays upon us and, and that leaves all of us basically pretty freaked out because, the, because living in the high holiday realm like where we're at now creates trepidation. It creates uh, um, it creates uh, a, a fear and a uh, anxiety. And here we have these super special days, but they come with anxiety. But that makes sense, I guess, because aren't we all waiting for some special days? Like, aren't you waiting for your wedding day? Yeah. <laughs> I think that would create some anxiety. You know, there'd be fear. And there will be, some, it's something you deeply want. It's a day of the greatest connection of your life, where you're really announcing publicly the connection. And it's a special day, but you're freaked out. And you're like ready to make in your pants. And so we're coming to that kind of holy convocation now. We're all coming to this Rosh Hashanah where we're, where we're going to be at one. You know, we're coming up to Yom Kippur, the day of at one minute. Otherwise pronounced atonement. But it means at one minute. And because when you atone for something, you become back to one again. Because you, you maybe split your personality up a little too much. Because we're all many people, and part of us is pretty dark. And, and um, you got a little split, and, and you did something stupid when you were split like that. And, and you have a day where you get to like kind of reform yourself and get back to being one being, you know. And, and that's the day of that one day of atonement. That's Yom Kippur. But anyway, we're scared of these days because they're powerful days. They're super powerful days. But I'd like to go deeper today and find out what's really scaring us. And 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 again, it doesn't mean the other stuff's not scaring us. I mean, there's other stuff scaring us. Like, for example, you're going to live or die. I mean, like we're being judged for our years. So that's scary. That's not. I'm not taking that away from anybody. If you want to be scared about living or dying, I wouldn't remove that from you. Because it's scary. So there are scary things about the day, but I'd like to go deeper about what's really scaring us about this day. And, and I think what's scaring us most is that the one thing we will, would appreciate would be stable is being threatened right now to destabilize. And human beings, we love destabilization. I mean, we really love it. You see, you're a glutton for it. <laughs> you're all just total chaos addicts. You know, look at your life, you know, like, the second you have like a good relationship going, you will somehow sabotage it. You know, you just create chaos. The second you like have some kind of surplus of finances, you will buy something that's just so untimely and put yourself right back in the hole. And you're you're basically a chaos addict, and you love it, and that's okay. And the and you know in business you're going to make another investment right when you finally like got fiscal. You're going to make another investment and put yourself back in the hole. And if you're a public speaker, you're going to start talking about stuff you don't even know, which is what I'm doing usually when the class comes out good. And, uh, and you're just going to put yourself into the chaos. And, and that's what you do when you dance, and that's what you do when you do sports. I mean, I just came from two hours of insane mountain biking on single tracks at super high speeds. Down, down, I shouldn't say super high speeds. Super high speeds for the terrain. I mean, it, you call it super low speeds, but when you're going down something this steep and it's mostly made of rock slabs with drop-offs at the bottom of each slab, you don't want to go so fast. 
you just want to stay afloat. You know, you're just kind of staying afloat. But it's just a love affair with chaos. And, and creating some kind of order with the handlebars and my micro-adjustments and my brakes, which make no attention to me. It's pure instinct of what's going on with my brakes. And thank God backed up by, you know, some of the nicest suspension money can buy. And that, that makes my bike totally disappear. So I can really be purely instinctual down the hill because I can rely on equipment of that caliber. And so, so I love playing that game. And I'm a surfer and I play that game and I do... You know, and I don't just do regular yoga. I'm going to do crazy yoga and do headstands and, and all kinds of balancing acts that come with risk. And I love the chaos, and I love creating order amongst it. Anyway, we love that. Now, I just want to mention one more area of chaos that is that women are responsible for, and that's our wives. Men hate chaos in the home. We don't like chaos in the home. So if you're single and listening to this, you'll just take notes for later is the one thing you want to stay ordered is your home. And we want it as ordered as possible. And we want our laundry done, and we want our food cooked, and we want our wife happy. And if she ain't, you know, it's her fault. And, and because she's causing problems now. And men want their home. Oh, great, we got a couple. Oh, perfect. There's two seats back there. Yeah, just hold on. Quite as possible though we're recording. So <laughs> good timing. Uh, how long are you two married, by the way? Three months. Three months. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> you look so fresh. I mean, it looks like like paint would come off of you. You should walk how jealous all of you should be of this couple because because these two these two have have Love that's only developing, obviously, because they only met each other a couple months ago. But and they and they only met for probably an hour or something. <laughs> How many times did you guys meet before you got engaged? Three times. And how long were those meetings? Forty. Fourteen. Just kidding. They met three times for forty minutes. Yeah. And but let me just put this on a. Let me just put this on a scale here. They got three times 40 minutes, which is only a 2019 phenomenon, okay? My daughter did not get three times for 40 minutes. And she was 17, and it was, she was in, you know, that was it. You know, which is really strange, because a 17-year-old girl, she's a teenager. She doesn't even know what sweater to put on. How she supposed to know which man to marry? And the answer is, very simple, that when your heart is whole, so then you have an intuition that's it's got a killer compass, like an incredible compass. If your heart is whole, meaning it hasn't been put through an egg slicer by various people for years, and like opened the egg slicer and turned and and turned and turned and turned, and your heart sliced with smithereens, don't expect a ton of intuition who to marry. You understand? Your, your intuition is gone, and now you're stuck. Where, so my daughter, what sweater to put on? She could never figure out. What shoes to buy? Well, my daughter's just buy them all. <laughs> and you'll deal with it later. And I, I mean, the, the talk of the town, my latest daughter, who got married, she married a, a guy from a Hasidic group in Pittsburgh, and somehow the entire Hasidic group knew how many pairs of shoes my daughter came into the marriage with. <laughs> a little embarrassing. But me, 
But again, what shoes to put on could be a 20-minute decision. And, and they, But who to marry? Boom, like there it is, like a laser beam. Because the heart's whole. The intuition's dinging away, like boom, boom, that's it. That's the one. And, and what a compass to rely on. Now, if you look at the other end of the spectrum, it's like, a date forever, move in together. You know, like, like, what, I mean, what, what is moving in, to quote JP, is what is moving in together? Moving in together is, is basically, I'll stay with you unless something better comes up. And if it does, I'll leave. <laughs> Gee, what a compliment. I mean, th that's not someone you move in with. That's someone you slap. you got to realize that most, most men who'd be interested in you need a cold shower. You understand? They, they, all they need is a is just a imprint of your hand on their face. Because, because well, that's of course not the case if you're, if you're approaching dating from a really like dignified place. If you're approaching it from a really dignified place, so then there's something about your dignity he's interested in. But if you're approaching it from like, you know, skin to win type place, then he just deserves a slap. And that's the last person you want fathering your children you know, expecting loyalty from. Because if it was skin that attracted him, well, there's other skin out there. And, and you're not always in the best mood, and marriage isn't always so great, and business trips and conventions, and, and uh, you know, you just, you don't want to date from that place, not the place you date from. You want to be as least attractive as possible. It reminds me of a guy, there was a Persian guy in L.A. that uh, he, drove, uh, he drove a fancy Mercedes, Unless he was on a date. When he took a girl out on a date, he had this like, I don't know where he got this thing. These things don't exist in LA. You send these to like the Midwest or something. It was, it was like a Mazda, it was like Mazda something that was like from 1970. You know, I think he had the floorboards out in case it stalled, you could just run, you know, like the Flintstones. <laughs> and he would pick up girls in that thing. Like he would go, he would, you know, it was back in the world where you had a date, you know. He would pick up the date in this thing. He wouldn't reveal that Mercedes until you know he got engaged, which never happened really. He just wound up marrying this Israeli lady. You know, but thank God they're married for years and happy. And, and, uh, you know, that's but but that's the kind of thing. That's just to give you an analogy to kind of a template to work off. Of. Now the. Um, Men don't like chaos in their home. You understand? Is that only men? What? Is that only men? Well, everyone likes chaos in their environment, and if a woman's environment's her home, she might go for the chaos right there. Men don't like that. We like our chaos outside the home, whether it's in our sports or in our, our, our uh, you know, some evening out where we may dance, or because dancing is the ultimate expression of chaos, or business, we love chaos. Like, you make much more money if you don't mind dancing into some chaos. And, and uh, so we love that stuff. Not in our homes. We don't like chaos in our homes. Now, how do you think a woman who's into growth, not every woman's into growth, but how do you think a woman into growth feels about a husband who wishes she would stay static and keep his clothes clean and his body fed? You know, that there should be nothing rocking the boat at home. 
I think a woman feels about that. Like, he wants everything to grow except for things inside the doors of his home. Positive or negative? How does a woman feel about that? She's not going to like that. She's not going to like that. She's a Jewish woman, especially, is interested in growing a lot. And the only way to grow is to shake things up. You know, like a guy works out, you know, he, he rips the muscles up and then they grow, you know, and then he gets bigger muscles. And, and so, so, but what can men do? You know, like how much chaos can you handle? It's like I'm already dealing with enough chaos trying to grow a business or enough chaos and whatever I do outside the home. I want more chaos, you know. But not a good idea. Not a good idea. It makes a wife have to create chaos. And a good wife, a good wife will create chaos in the home. And not only that, but lots of kids will create chaos in the home. Fathers who are very controlling and don't want any of that chaos in their home. This has been in my pocket the whole time. I think you need a headphone. I can't believe that I did this whole class with a microphone in my pocket. Probably have very like controlling fathers well I mean that's not why because having kids follow specific things and having strict rules is a good way to create a mensch out of a kid but but it could very well be what's going on with the father and what do kids do what do kids do when fathers are trying to make their homes too static yeah they, they rebel and they provoke and they they make their father grow and kids of parents of rebellious children should thank their children they should thank them. You know why? Because the rebellious kids give parents the chance to to have to earn the world to come. Rebellious kids give their parents a chance to earn the world to come. You know why? You know why rebellious kids cause their parents to earn the world to come? Because in the world to come. It's, we have another name for it. It's called the uh, Olam HaEmes. What does that mean? The world of truth. truth. Well, why do you think most parents do what they do? You guys got to hear this. I know you guys are like lovebirds and can't stop talking, but just listen to this. Why do most parents do what they do in their Jewish lives? The answer is it's because they're worried about what people might think. Brainwashed. Not brainwashed. They're worried what people might think. They have. They are self-governing. They are self-governing their Jewish lives based on looking good for the community at large. Now, is that a true reason to be keeping Torah, or is that a false reason for tra- keeping Torah? It's a false one. Now, do you think keeping Judaism with all the mitzvahs, which some are very expensive, like for example, Sukkot? You know, suk- my Sukkah can cost, and people, anyone who's watching this, who would like to. Of course, I'm turning to the people on the live feed. I'm not expecting any of you to do this, but anyone watching this live feed who'd like to have a little merit in the, the Glazer sukkah, I'll pay for it if you don't, but if you'd like to have merit in some of the meals, you can obviously uh, send me a WhatsApp or something, and I'll direct you where to send some dough um, to, to be part of it. Otherwise, I'll pay it off by Hanukkah, I'm sure. Um, but the mitzvahs are expensive. But you've got to be doing it for the right reasons. It has to be done for truth, for MS. And then when you get to a world called MS, you cash in. You cash in on all the things you did. But if you did everything because of what people might think, so then you don't cash in. 
you get Zippo. And Zippo is pretty scary to get for someone who, for example, sacrificed all his financials and all his family time to study Torah because in his family, that's what was called looking good. And so he learned Torah his whole life to get upstairs to find nothing, to find nothing from, from 50 years of dedication to the Torah. And he gets nothing when he gets up there. But all it takes is one rebellious kid. And that rebellious kid makes him feel like such a fool in front of the community. Because here's Mr. Terror, can't even keep his kids in line. You know, like his kids just refuse to let him look good. And, or at least one kid. All it takes is one. He's got one kid who's going to not play the game. And, and meanwhile, the father's going to kill this guy because, like, he's ruining everything. Like, the whole, the whole cas- castle of sand is, like, the waves are crashing in on it. And the castle's washing out. Meanwhile, this kid's doing the biggest favor he could ever do because what he's doing is causing this father the humiliation. And now he's going to have to ask himself this question. And he all, everyone asks themselves this, and we learn it from Rebecca, Rivka, who asked the question when she had Asaph in her belly. She had an evil man in her belly when she was going to give birth to twins, Yaakov and Asaph. She had an evil one in there. And what did she say? Lamazet anechi. Lama ze anuchi can be translated to, what am I living for? What's my life all about if this is my progeny? If this is how my kid turned out, what am I living for now? Do you think, having heard the story before I talked about the rebellious kid, but the story about the man studying Torah for 50 years, or you could take the rich guy who's like the big macher in the community. You know, the big, like, you know, he's got the tallest strimal in town, $6,000 Strimal on Chavez, and he's like Mister Everything. Right, and his name's on the on the Ark, and his name's on the Tyrant, and his name's on the Shul, and and you know he's the guy, you know. And then one of his kids just like just goes like snip, you know. <laughs> and he asks him now that guy. Would you have said that it would be really great if that guy could stop for a moment and ask himself what he's living for? Yes or no? Yes or no? Would it have been good for that guy? Keeping all his kids on the path. His kids make him look perfect. They're all little carbon copies of the father. And everything's going smoothly. And would you say that wouldn't it be great that this guy gets a next world by asking himself the question, what am I living for? Would you guys say that would be a good thing for that guy? A very good thing. He should stop. He's got to hit the brakes and ask himself, what am I living for? And then if he really looked deep into that question, he'd realize he's living for everything but truth. He doesn't live for truth. He lives for, for, uh, for um, you know, the significance in the eyes of others and, the, and uh, what's called kavod is honor and, and glory and, and all the ego stuff that we get tricked into wanting which is a mirage. And that would be great because then he could live for the right things and then he could, you know, and then, and then we're, we're, we're taught by our Kabbalists that all he has to do, you ready for this? The 50 years of study he's done and all the mitzvahs he did are all sitting inside a storehouse. They're locked away. They don't disappear. They're waiting. They're just waiting. You know what they wait for? They wait for him, says the Kabbalists, 
to review those pieces of Torah. He just has to go back and learn them again once. All he has to do is review them, having in mind that there's a God and there's a divine prophecy called Torah and we have a mitzvah to study that Torah. That's all he's got to have in mind. He's got to review everything. Review it all. And, and also do those mitzvahs that he does throughout the year. And what happens is he opens the safe that has everything stored and it all releases. So that's the good news is it's all waiting for him. Sadly, most people never ask themselves, what am I living for? And what it takes is a rebellious kid. And the rebellious kid, which is we learn from Rebecca, from Rivka, is causes a father to ask himself what's he living for. And when he asks himself that question, you'll notice something very interesting, by the way. The fathers who ask the question, the mothers that ask that question, they uh, generally that kid will come right back on the path. Meaning, service rendered. Service rendered. Did my job. You know, the kid did his job. He usually comes right back afterwards. And this is one of the smart reasons for bar mitzvahs in the in the ultra-Orthodox world is to slam that kid into a hat and coat because the likelihood of him rebelling at 13 is, is sorry, the blessing of a rebellion at 13 is because a 13-year-old has a very different imagination than an 18-year-old. You understand? Meaning most, most kids in the modern Orthodox community might rebel when they can already drive. <laughs> yeah, they can get themselves in a lot of trouble. But 13-year-olds aren't thinking about, you know, they're not thir- thinking about girls, weed, and cars, you know. They, their 13-year-olds are just thinking about stupid stuff and, and let them rebel. You know, let the 13-year-old rebel. He's how, as creative as he can be. It's not like an 18-year-old. And uh, it's a nice early age, gets the parents freaking out, asking that question, what am I living for? And then and then the parents can get their acts together. Now, how do you curtail all of this? Ask yourself what you're living for now. And live for that. And take good care of your kids. Make sure they know they're number one. And that you would, you would follow your kids to the end of the earth. I tell my kids, I don't care what you do with yourself. I mean, I care, but it's your life. You know? And I will back you to the end of the earth. I will never, ever, ever drop you. And I will back you, and I'll back you financially. I tell them this at young ages, middle ages, till they're already in their teens. Wherever you go, I will be behind you. I'll never drop you. There's nothing you can do that will take away my love and support, including my financial support. And, and what a nice thing to have that. What a nice way to feel secure in your life. And, and my kids do take some powerful individual steps and there I am right beside them go for it push limits see where you see where you can see what you might discover out there but later I see that they're all like they're all on board you know they're they're into their Judaism and their their self uh, self swear Self-motivated. Self-motivated. I just realized that you, we have the tour now. So let me conclude this quickly. Yeah, I'm sorry. I totally forgot. 
I just looked at the clock thinking it was must be 410 or something, as usual. Okay. Um, anyway, this was an extremely long-winded way of saying that that wives are smart to create a little chaos and kids are smart to create a little chaos in the house. But here's the best place. In the lo- and I know I said that men want no chaos in the house so they can have all their fun outside the house with the chaos so they grow. Here's the place that nobody wants chaos. And nobody wants chaos inside. No one wants chaos in, in their actual identity. We squeeze our identity like a white-knuckled ride. No one wants to mess with their identity. And that's what's being messed with on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It's actually your, your own deepest self. The deepest, perform, the deepest part of who you are. I shouldn't say it's getting messed with. It's getting revealed. And what's getting messed with is whoever you're not. But whoever you're not is the white-knuckled grip. You're poised and postured around who you're not. And it's like a... It's like a it's so fragile. Think how fragile you are. Think how fragile you are in your own self-image. Think how fragile your ego is. Well, that should be a hint to how shallow it is and how fake it is and how not true it is. Seriously, think how fragile you are. If, you were, if who you think you are is so damn solid, you wouldn't be so damn fragile. Because it's not who you are. And this period of time in Judaism is when it all gets stripped away. Otherwise, you're going to hate shul because all we're doing all for two days straight in Rosh Hashanah and then seven more days and then Yom Kippur climaxes, the tenth day of it all, is we're going to strip ourselves down to what is solid. What is true? Of course you're scared. Who wants to, who wants to try to hold on to that while the days were, were designed to strip it away? Of course it's going to be uncomfortable there. No one wants to be in that position. Unless, of course, you approach it as a gift to actually strip it all down and get to something solid inside of you. Something worth, worth having, something worth living for. <sighs> like I said, a very long-winded way of saying that. Um, shalom, everyone. Have a beautiful day. You can uh, end those. Shalom. And uh, please, uh, please subscribe and... Uh, and uh, hit the likes and hit the shares and hit all that stuff and uh, and join the media club yomtomediaclub.com uh, yomtomediaclub.com you've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com